Hi, this is Jacob Plummer, and this is episode three of the Health Policy Entrepreneurs, a podcast that brings together the stories and insights of experts in healthcare for discussions on what they would recommend we do through policy or business to achieve value-based care in the United States over the next 10 years. Today, we'll have that discussion with Martin Gaynor, professor of economics at Carnegie Mellon University and recipient of the 2017 Kenneth Arrow Award in Health Economics. Professor Gaynor's full bio will be on our show notes, but as highlights of his many accomplishments, Marty is one of the founders of the Healthcare Cost Institute, an independent nonpartisan nonprofit dedicated to advancing knowledge about U.S. healthcare spending, and in addition to many other positions of distinction, was recently elected in 2016 to the National Academy of Medicine. Uh, Marty, it's great to have you, and thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks, Jacob. It's great to be here. And so what I wanted to do is, is maybe um, start to, to have a short background of you, you know, from your perspective. Like I said, we'll put your full uh, biography in the show notes, but I'd like to hear your perspective of how you wound up choosing to focus your career on competition, antitrust policy, and efficiency in healthcare markets. Right. Well, uh, first I'll, I'll give you the, uh, perhaps the not-so-flattering version of that, which is in some ways I just stumbled on this, but, but I will tell you something that perhaps makes it sound a little bit more thoughtful as well. So uh, as an undergraduate at University of California, San Diego, I took a course uh, in what's called industrial organization, which is the economic field that studies competition, markets, regulation, antitrust. And I really enjoyed that. I just found it very, very interesting. It, it didn't talk about healthcare at all. Healthcare really wasn't on the radar screen at that time. Of course, when I was an undergrad, that was, I think, in the Mesozoic period. So, um, you know, we were really thrilled about fire at that time, but in the wheel. But uh, we weren't thinking about things like healthcare. And I went to grad school. I did continue to study this area, but I just completely stumbled into healthcare. There were no courses in healthcare. Some, at some point, Someone told me, oh, this professor has some data on hospitals or something. You could go get that. And, and I just fell into it. So that's part of it. Now, the other thing is, since I was a grad student, I have been working on healthcare now for almost 40 years at this point. And one thing that happened is the following. Over time, I've seen a whole parade of policies and buzzwords come and go. And a lot of these things have been focused either on trying to get individuals to do something or not do something, or to use sort of, in my view, sort of heavy-handed oversight or regulations to try and get providers to do things. And what I became convinced of over time is that while there are some good things one could do with individuals, what I'll call the demand side of healthcare, what individual consumers and patients do, their choices, that the opportunities for moving the system through that, that side of the, the healthcare market are pretty limited. The reason for that is that people are heavily insured, and that's a good thing. We need insurance against catastrophic expenses in healthcare, just like anything else. But what that also means is that since we're heavily insured, at least most of us in the U.S., once we're under insurance coverage, we don't have any financial reason to pay attention to what anything costs, and we don't. So 
that convinced me that we really need to look to the other side of the market, what I'll call the supply side. What happens with hospitals, doctors, pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, and try and find ways to make that side of the market work better than it does. The other thing that happened also is that uh, starting in the 1990s, there were some changes that led to more competition in healthcare markets, the rise of managed care, the sunset or the ending of a number of regulations that state level that restricted competition. So certificate of need regulations went away in a number of states. Those restricted the entry of new providers. Professional society restrictions on advertising that had been part and parcel of the landscape went away under scrutiny from the Federal Trade Commission. And so these markets started to open up a bit. I don't want to exaggerate. We're not talking buying a quart of milk here. But these markets did become more competitive. And researchers started looking at what was happening in these markets, uh, a number of really good researchers. And I started doing work on this. And so uh, the story that makes me th sound a little bit more thoughtful is that over time, just by virtue of having looked at this sector of the economy, and observed what was happening and looking at the research evidence, I became convinced that trying to make these markets work better, so long as we have a market-based system, which is what we have now, and at least for the, uh, the foreseeable future, is really the important place to pay attention and, and where we need to place policy and business emphasis. And so as you've been, you know, working in your career, you haven't only looked at U.S. markets. I mean, it sounds like you've also spent a fair amount of time working overseas as well. Have they had, has that work had the same focus, whether it's been in the Netherlands or, or the U.K.? I think we'll talk a little bit about the U.K. Uh, or South Africa. Yeah, that, that's actually been very interesting and uh, has been very rewarding for me to have the opportunity to learn about these other systems, which have some things in common with the U.S., in some cases a lot more than, than people might suspect, but are nonetheless sort of unique in their own ways. And what's happened, interestingly, in places like the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, South Africa, is they've tried to take systems that were much more centralized, more command and control systems, and decentralize them. They're not moving all the way towards the kind of markets we have in the US, in particular in the UK. They maintain uh, government administered pricing, but NHS hospitals, National Health Services hospitals, now compete for patients, which they didn't previously. The Netherlands actually has moved a lot of the way towards something that's much closer to the US in which there is price as well as other forms of competition. And South Africa, again, everything is unique, but they're also very concerned about how things are functioning. They have moved towards a more market-like system. So many issues arise over and over and over again. Of course, the, one has to take into account the specifics, what exactly is happening in South Africa, exactly how the system works, exactly what the population is like, what the institutions are like. But that's actually been, uh, been quite fascinating and been incredibly educational for me. I think, you know, even when I was doing work in England, they had a program that, and it, it matched what you just said about this, this concept of being centralized and then moving to decentralized. So they had a program for electronic medical records that was called the National Program for Health IT. And they chose a single vendor for the entire country. 
and they, they bought it centrally for NHS England, and then they rolled it out to all the different trusts. And the results after several years went by is that they said this is a flop. And it was because they didn't have local buy-in at the trust level. So even though they had purchased the software and they had the, the implementation capabilities, it just wasn't getting implemented. And it wasn't until they actually said, okay, well, we're now not going to require people to go with the central version. You can go out to the market and look for your own solution that you started to see more adoption you know, take place. Uh, but it was sluggish because all the expertise at the local level to make those type of selections had had disappeared, you know, during that period because it was a central decision, you know, and so there was no need to have people at the local level. And but I thought that was fascinating that here, you know, in the U.S., we're talking a lot about how do we centralize and how do we get more um, quality, you know, from sort of a, I don't know, a Washington down sort of view. But then in some of these other countries, they, they maybe are going in the other direction. Yeah, it, it, is, it is quite interesting. Though most other countries outside the U.S. started with a, with a much more centralized government-controlled or either sort of or literally government-provided system, and certainly not every place, but a lot of places have been trying to decentralize, uh, allow for some more local control and initiative, but also uh, try to allow for more choice and competition. What they found over time is everybody's faced some, or at least the, the rich countries have faced these same problems about growing spending, issues with quality, uh, uh, either lack of at least organizational innovation, not generally technical innovation. And so since they were very centralized and very command and control, they thought, well, maybe we can sort of go the other way, loosen that up a little bit. And interestingly enough, the U.S., which has been uh, starting from the opposite end of the spectrum has been moving a bit more. I don't want to suggest we're converging to exactly the same model. And that probably wouldn't be appropriate because every place is different, but it has been really fascinating. Yeah. Another thing that was really, really educational eye-opening for me as well is that uh, in 2013, 2014, I was the chief economist at the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, the director of the Bureau of Economics there. And uh, we dealt with everything, not just healthcare, uh, markets for ductile pipes, um, uh, 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 health claims for nutritional supplements, all kinds of, all kinds of things, ball bearings, bottles that spirits and beer go into, and just everything under the sun. But since healthcare is such a huge part of the U.S. economy, we at the FTC dealt a lot with healthcare as well, both antitrust, a major, major area of emphasis at the FTC, but also consumer protection. And that was really educational and eye-opening for me uh, to see that. And also uh, for me, a very rewarding opportunity to serve the country and try and contribute, uh, as not just myself, but really part of a group of people, all the folks at, at the FTC, to try and help healthcare markets work better and do things in a very concrete, hands-on way in real time. Yeah, and I am actually want to talk to you a little bit more about um, the FTC's role sure. in healthcare markets. And But before, before we get to that, I wanted to ask you sort of an opening question on healthcare spending in the United States. So it's the easiest math that I can uh, you know, use. There's 330 million people in the country. And in 2015, at least a couple of years ago, the, the average was that per capita, there was $10,000 of spending. Uh, and so that 
aggregates to, I mean, that would be 3.3, it was a little bit less, $3.2 trillion in, in healthcare spending, which was about 18% of GDP, or maybe a little bit less than that. And you know, there are so many articles and books that begin with sort of that statistic, and then the next paragraph is, isn't that awful? You know, it's, it's too much money to be spent. But I wanted to push back on that a little bit because certainly the example has been given that all of us are spending a lot more on smartphones today than we were 25 years ago. And that's not a bad thing uh, necessarily. And so we have a lot of good outcomes that comes from that. But we don't want to spend money inefficiently as well. And so my question is, how efficient is our spending in healthcare today? Or how should we think about that? Right. And, and that's exactly the right question asked, Jacob. Just because we spend a lot of money on something, be it healthcare or IT or telecommunications or entertainment, doesn't mean we're spending too much. So there are lots of speeches given by politicians and academics and policy pundits about healthcare. We need to control spending. I don't hear people giving speeches about how we need to less spend money, spend less money on computers or software or smartphones. Uh, I I don't think you know heading we're heading into the midterm elections coming up. Uh, I'd be willing to bet you a fair amount of money we don't have candidates in any place in the United States debating each other about the amount of money the U.S. spends on smartphones. That's just not going to come up. And the reason for that is, I think, is pretty obvious because, uh, first off, it's private money. Everybody's making their own decisions. And it's also abundantly clear to people that smartphones add a lot of value. Uh, And if I don't want to spend $1,000 on a new iPhone or a Galaxy or whatever, I don't have to. I don't have to buy a smartphone at all. Now, healthcare is different. But let me be clear, just because we're spending almost $1 every five in the U.S. economy, that alone doesn't mean it's too much. A couple things, why? We're a rich country. Well, we're going to spend our money on something. We don't save any money in the U.S., so we're just going to spend it, right? Um, you know, if I have a lot of money or you have a lot of money, if we have two refrigerators or two cars, is that too many? If we have two couches, is that... Is that too many? It, it's, it's not clear. Another reason to think that at least some of that money is well spent is that healthcare has gotten a lot better. We know smartphones have gotten a lot better. We know computers have gotten a lot better. But so is healthcare, right? If we have problems with cataracts in our eyes, which for most of us develop over time, right? Um, not so many years ago, either you just lost your vision in in whole or in part, or you could have an operation to remove the cataract and put it in an artificial lens. Well, back in the bad old days, what that operation involved was somebody giving you an anesthetic shot with a needle right into your eyeball, cutting it open, extracting surgically the cataract and putting a rigid lens and then stitching it up. That took a long time and recovery took a long time and uh, success rate was okay, but not great. Now, here's what happens if you have a cataract, which, by the way, this surgery is the single most frequently performed procedure that Medicare pays for because it develops for all of us as we age. You go in, the physician puts a topical anesthetic on your eye. They make a very small incision. They put a small device in which vibrates and, uh, and just breaks up the cataract. It's sucked out. It's just aspirated through this same device. They put a foldable, flexible lens in through this small opening, which can actually improve your vision over what it was previously. 
and you walk out the door 15 minutes later you're gone and not surprisingly the recovery time is much lower people feel better if your knees go bad you can have them replaced if your hip goes bad you can have them replaced people still have plenty of heart problems in the United States but if you have heart problems chances are pretty good you're going to live a much longer healthier life than you would have just 20 30 or 40 years ago somebody with serious heart problems back in the 1960s or 1970s had a much lower life expectancy and much lower quality of life even cancer which is a horrible thing for anyone who has to deal with that or their families we're much better at treating many kinds of cancer. So healthcare has gotten better. And this is simple economics, although honestly, you don't need to be an economist to understand this. If something becomes better and more valuable to people, they'll spend more money on it. So a lot of this is natural. That's all the good news. But I'm an economist, so let me put the dismal in the dismal science. I, this is my professional obligation. Uh, there's some bad news as well. And just as you alluded to, the problem is that we're probably spending too much money because we're spending money on things that don't generate value that's at least equal to what they cost. There are some drugs or some procedures that either across the board or for certain kinds of patients really don't work all that well. And yet we keep using those things. Uh, physicians either keep prescribing them or performing them. Patients keep requesting them. And, and so there, there is waste. Uh, there are some things that cost more to do than they otherwise should. There are a lot of prices that are too high because hospitals or doctors, insurance companies, pharma companies have too much market power. They don't face enough competition. And although the service or the treatment is valuable, what it costs to get it is too much. So I could, go, I could go on and on, but I think there's nearly universal agreement among economists and many other people. It's not that spending a lot of money on healthcare is bad, but nonetheless, the last few dollars we spent, if, we, if instead of spending 18% of our national income on healthcare, we spent 17%, that 1% probably could go to other things that would generate more value for us as a society than what it's going to now. Well, I liked the last example that you gave of sometimes there being health systems that are not having enough competition or enough other hospitals because it ties into one thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is the paper uh, Free to Choose that you published along with uh, Carol Proper at Imperial College London and Stephen Seiler, I believe, at GSB Stanford. And in that, it looked at uh, NHS England and a decision that they made in, I think, the mid-2000s, maybe around 2006. Yeah, that's right. Where it sounded like prior to that, patients that needed coronary artery bypass were uh, guided to a local hospital, and that was their choice of, of where to go. Um, and there was a reform that was made that said that they, they had a choice now of of five different hospitals that they could go. And your paper explored what happened. And so I'm wondering, can you set the stage for us a little bit about uh, uh, anything more about why this policy change happened and then what, what made you interested in studying it? Yeah, uh, that was really fascinating. Again, we, we talked a bit about some of my experiences with uh, what's going on in other countries. And this is one of the things I, 
I really found fascinating and very rewarding to, to work on. So the genesis of this study actually was uh, my, my colleague and friend, Carl, Carol Proper, at some point was writing a grant proposal to the Department of Health in the United Kingdom. And she said, do you want to participate? We're going to look at this reform that was designed to bring competition to the National Health Service. And I thought, oh, no way this is going to work, right? This is a centralized command and control, almost Stalinist structure, right? It's reified. Nobody that works at these hospitals is going to be able to even think in terms of competition, patients and doctors. This is going to accomplish nothing. But um, hey, you know, it'll be interesting. I'll get, uh, get a couple trips to, to London paid for. So so cool. And, and Carol's a great economist. I thought it'd be really fun to work with her. We teamed up with uh, Stefan, who at that time was a PhD student at London School of Economics. So it turned out, much to my pleasure, I was wrong. I mean, this is one of the great things about doing science, about doing research. The fun part is when you find out you were wrong. That's, you know, the, that's the whole point of doing research. If you knew everything in advance, you wouldn't have to do it. So learning stuff is what's What's so cool about this? So it turns out there were some important moving parts to this. You already mentioned that what, uh, what happened with the reform is one thing is that patients got choice. So their doctors had to present patients with at least five different choices. And I think one of the keys was that the doctor was engaged with this and they were uh, talking with the patient about this. But there were some other key things as well. Uh, hospitals went to a system where they paid a, a fixed ex-ante price determined by the National Health Service. That was one thing. Uh, and the third thing was the following that had not been possible previously. If you were a hospital and you made money, you got to keep it. In the past, you didn't. If you made money, it would just be taken away. And so... Uh, hospitals now had an incentive to try and attract patients because if they did, they could retain any funds and use it for whatever purpose. They couldn't uh, just say increase the salaries of everybody, but they could use it for investment to improve the facilities, do things that, uh, that would be beneficial. Whereas in the past, in order to get funds for investment, they had to go to a central entity within the NHS and there was a very long, difficult bureaucratic procedure. So it gave individual hospitals a lot more independence and discretion as well as financial autonomy. And so I think all these things, these three things together interacted. And as I said, it turned out that my expectations that nothing would happen were just, were just wrong. So we decided to look at, at heart bypass surgery. We, there are lots of things one could look at, but that's a fairly common uh, procedure that's done. It's also a, a serious treatment for people who are, have serious issues with health so that uh, if something bad happens, you can see it. Mortality is unfortunately a fairly common result, but you can see when that happens and everybody agrees mortality is a bad thing. So we could see that as well. And so we were able to look at what happened and lo and behold, it turns out after the reform, people start going to different hospitals and they tended to go to places that did better and we're less likely to go to places that didn't do as well. And on top of that, it seems like the hospitals responded to this, that they really did try to do better and improve their quality of care. Well, you know, I had a question when I was reading. I really had two. Um, the first one is, were you surprised that patients were able to know which hospital would be the best one for them to go to? 
Yeah, I, I was kind of surprised, but again, this is where the nature of the the policy reform, I think, was was important. And people often say things like the devil's in the details about things, and and sometimes that's really true. So the key thing was that the the patient's physician had to present them with the choices rather than somebody. Uh, the NHS say telling people, oh, by the way, you have five choices, go to our website, log on, click through about 10 different screens and get to them. They were sitting in the doctor's office. Doctor said, you know, here's what's going on with your heart condition. I don't think it's getting better. I think surgery is, is a good idea for you to consider. And here are five places. And the patient could engage with the physician right there and learn things like, okay, uh, where are they located? What's their track record? What's your opinion about the various surgeons that operate at this, these different places? And I say that, I want to be clear, I don't have direct scientific evidence on that because we weren't able to test that because that was just part of the reform. But my, my strong feeling based on uh, what we heard from people in the UK and just other things I, I've heard from participants in the health system over time is that that was a key feature of of this reform it wasn't just saying you know loudly you've got choice now go do something yeah you actually had an agent your physician was acting as an agent and guiding you right and and another thing that i didn't mention previously that i think it's important for listeners to understand here in the british context is that physicians had nothing to gain or lose by recommending one hospital or another these physicians in the national health service are paid a salary they uh, can't make more money if a patient goes to hospital one or hospital two. They're not responsible for the expenses of the patient anywhere. So they have no incentive uh, financially to refer a patient one place or another. Their only incentive is hopefully to do right by, by the patient. They might also be a little lazy, so they might not exert the effort, but, but they're not profiting if a patient goes one place yeah, or another. If I remember, remember correctly, that was post-reform. Yes. Pre-reform, they may not have had any financial incentive to refer the local hospital, but they were under some sort of institutional direction to recommend a local hospital. Is that correct? Yes. So they, they weren't literally required to refer to the local hospital, but the way the system worked there, there's a local entity that governed healthcare for people in the NHS in you know in each local area. And that local entity actually had to pay additional funds if patients went out of area. So the local entity had some disincentives to have too many people referred outside the area. And they couldn't take money away from the doctors, but they could talk to them. They could bring some pressure to bear. It was also the path of least resistance. You know, sometimes people will do things just out of habit if they're not directly confronted with well, you could do something different. And I think this may have happened with the doctors as well, completely well-intentioned, but they're just used to referring to the local hospital. They probably think, well, it's, it's, it's good, it's fine. They know the, the physicians who operate there. Once they were required to give five choices to patients, well, then they had to think about it a little bit more. Another thing I thought that was interesting is that in the paper, I, I think it said that the patients who were the most ill were the most responsive to patient choice. And that surprised me because I thought, well, in some ways, if I'm given a choice, then 
I want the best. Let me go to wherever I can. But it didn't seem that that's what was happening. It seemed that the patients who really were the worst off were the ones that were uh, that were taking the full advantage of, of picking the best place to go. And maybe that's because of their physician counseling. I don't know. Yeah, that again, that I, I don't know. I can't I can't say again from a scientific basis. But but we found that uh, reassuring in, in that uh, people who were the sickest and the most vulnerable in terms of their health actually disproportionately ended up going to to better places, which to us made sense, right? Who are the people who uh, who are affected the most? The people who are were the sickest, but what it also says is prior to the reform, these people were made the worse off by not being able to choose. So in terms of the intervention surprising you and, and being successful, it, it, you know, in the paper, you write that the changes amounted uh, in terms of, of saying what was the effect, what was the clinical effect and the health effect, that there was a 3% decrease in what would have been the expected mortality rate in the relevant time period. And uh, if you wanted to assign a financial uh, value to that, the literature suggests using $100,000 US for the value of a year of life. And the survivors' lives were extended, uh, according to some other research, an expected length of about 17 years. So the beneficial effects of these reforms would be about $5.6 million per year. Um, in terms of the value. And so let me ask you with that as, as, as sort of the numbers, it, this did not require any additional investment on part of the hospitals or the NHS. I mean, certainly maybe the time of the physicians that was being spent. Was this a positive return on investment? Was this a good policy uh, change from your perspective? Oh, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I think so. Um, you're, you're not, in particular, you're not talking about um, it cost just like you said, costing more money. The amount, uh, the funding for the NHS didn't change, right? And yet you, so you're spending the same amount of money. You're getting better health outcomes. You clearly come out ahead here. And remember, we were only looking at heart bypass surgery. We didn't look at effects throughout the entire system. Now, I want to be careful here. It'd be tempting to say, well, we found this for heart bypass surgery. So if we look at every single thing the total effects would be even larger, but we don't know that. It's possible, say, if we looked at, at oncology treatment or, um, or hip replacement or something, it might not go the way we found for, for heart bypass surgery. But, uh, but if indeed, if it were the case that there were uh, positive benefits system-wide, then this number is, is only a small part of the total. And I think I, I wanted to ask you also about the hospitals that stopped seeing the patients that they otherwise would have seen because the patients were going towards the more high quality hospitals. What happened to them? Well, I think uh, a, a couple things. One, um, hospitals did try to do better. So we have some evidence we refer to in the paper where it looks like hospitals that were faced with patient populations that were more responsive in the aggregate to quality differences actually stepped up their games. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's one thing. And, uh, and then some, some hospitals uh, did see a drop off, at least in, in this area. Now, one thing we did not do in this study is we didn't follow all these hospitals beyond the time period of, of this study. It, there has been 
in the NHS over some time, some closures, some consolidations of hospitals that were not doing so well. But again, I want to be careful. We didn't follow, so I can't say that the hospitals that were closed or were uh, put under new management were necessarily the ones that did poorly here. The When we talk about sort of the pre-reform period where patients were uh, trying to be kept sort of in their local area and there wasn't as much choice, that sounds to me uh, analogous in many ways to some U.S. markets where we have uh, consolidation of fewer choices where patients can go and where people are actively encouraging. I think the term that's used is leakage, that if you, that you want to keep a patient or at least a health system wants to keep a patient within their four walls rather than sending them out. Is it, is it a, a fair analogy? Well, I think one always has to be cautious. It's really hard to take something that happened in the National Health Service in the UK, say 2006 to 2008, and compare it uh, to something happening in Pittsburgh or Cleveland or San Francisco or Boston in 2017, right? But I think there, I think there are some analogies. So the one thing, and this is, again, something you don't have to be an economist to see, is if you don't have to compete harder to attract business, whether you're a gas station or a grocery store or a hospital, if you don't have to, you're not going to. And that means that, that, the, that not just prices can go up, but that service and quality can slip. And I think that we can see that in the United States as well. If you look at the Medicare program in the United States, in which prices are are fixed by the government, just like they were in the, in the United Kingdom. There is evidence that, that shows that. Actually, there's a, a study from quite a few years ago, a, rather, a study with rather alarming results that shows that if you look at Medicare patients who had a heart attack, and you compare Medicare patients who were treated at hospitals that were in the most competitive markets in the US, Compare those people to patients who were competed, who were treated in the least competitive markets in the U.S. See, the people who were treated in the most competitive places did a lot better than pay, people treated the least competitive places. And actually, I think what the authors found in that study was that people treated at hospitals that faced the less com least com amount of competition had a 3.37 percentage point higher probably of dying in the year following they had a heart attack, then people are treated the most competitive places. In other words, lack of competition kills. Now, like I said, that's alarming. That's actually front page headlines for newspapers. But that speaks to this point. If you look at what happens to people with private health insurance, I'd say that the scientific results are more mixed, but in my view, the, the best studies show that if you have mergers, if you have less competition, that the quality of care does not improve, and in some cases, it falls. And for the reasons that we were just discussing, nobody in a hospital is cynically saying something like, oh, let's uh, let our patient quality of care degrade, we'll make more money. I don't think they're doing that. But if you're not facing tough competition, then you take it a little easier here, you take it a little easier here, you take nothing big, 
But all those little things can add up. And particularly for very sick patients whose health is fragile, there can be almost a cascade of small things, none of which are intended, that unfortunately can have really dramatic impacts. And I think to your point, having been a hospital director, sometimes you don't know that you're not delivering the best uh, service. I think this has nothing to do with healthcare, but because I'm from Illinois, there's this old story about how Abraham Lincoln thought that he was actually a, a pretty good attorney. And then he was in Ohio and he was witnessing a case that was being argued uh, by a firm out in New York. And he realized that his quality of argument was far below what, what, what was elsewhere in the market. And that feedback actually caused him to go and say, okay, now I know how to what to aim for, right? So I think right. that it could be even as simple as that. Yeah, no, I, think that's, I think that's right. I mean, competition is, economists love competition, right? Um, businesses don't, let's be honest, right. but it's painful. It's really, really hard. I, I mean, uh, you always have to be on your toes. Your profit margins are thin. Some, you're under threat of somebody else eating your lunch every single day. But by virtue of that, you do have to be on your toes. And somebody can come into the market who has a better mousetrap. And if you can't keep up with that, then you're going to lose big time. And, and that does benefit the people on the other side of the market, customers or patients. So the Kenneth Arrow Award is, uh, goes to the most impactful paper in health economics. Why do you believe that this paper earned that distinction? Well, that's that's an awkward question. You'd have to ask the the uh, the panel that that decided on that. But but I, I think that I, I think that probably a, a few different reasons. We we looked at uh, we we're able to apply an economic lens to the National Health Service, something that I mean has been done, but perhaps hasn't been done that frequently, and. We we're able to use very rigorous scientific methods to, to get at this. It can often be very difficult to try and figure out what really happens and whether something causes another because we're not working in a lab here, right? We can't take some elements and put them together and observe a chemical reaction. We're not working with rats. We have to look at what happened among very large groups of people and organizations afterwards and then try and figure out, well, we can see what happened, but what actually caused it? And of course, social phenomena are very complicated. So that's challenging to do. We were able, in part by virtue of the nature of these forms, what happened, but also I don't want to sell down self-aggrandizing, but we came up with some methodological approaches also that allowed us to get some greater insight. So I, I think that's probably, uh, those are probably the factors that, that played into that. In, in sort of a final reaction, you know, after the paper came out, I mean, here this was a reform that was put in place and it had the uh, effect, a very good effect, uh, both in terms of judiciously spending money and having uh, good health outcomes and, and good patient care. And then the paper is recognized, you know, for, uh, for, for sort of reporting and analyzing this. But there was a comment that I, I read somewhere, uh, and I don't remember where, but it said that actually the policymakers did not seem to fully recognize uh, the benefits of this reform. Is that, do you remember anything like that? I may have to go and, and check the sources. I'm curious about if this, if this policy led to 
people within NHS England saying, let's do more of this? Or did it, uh, what, what was the sort of after story? Well, at this point, NHS England has moved on to a whole bunch of other <laughs> issues. Of other they're, things, they're, sure. Their major issue right now is sort of how do they uh, provide basic services given the level of funding they, they have. They're, they're facing a somewhat different set of issues. But I think that, uh, I don't know so much the people at NHS, but there has been some concern in the UK, again, not so much by people in the NHS, but other people that the UK government might try to either demolish the NHS or privatize it or private, partially privatize it. And some people viewed our work as either being motivated by that, which it was not, or somehow being used by people who had that that goal in mind, which again is not what the work is about. It's about this is what the NHS is. This is just something that was done that was beneficial for the functioning of the NHS system. But there, there were some concerns that people had there, and honestly, uh, our work and the work that some other folks had did had done did get attacked by uh, by some people. But I think it was within this sort of framework of a larger concern about. Uh, what the future might hold for the National Health Service, not so much our work, and we just somehow got sucked into this in uh, for reasons I don't completely understand. But since I don't live in the UK, I didn't have to deal with much of this directly. I understand. Well, it was a it was an interesting paper to read, and I think that it highlighted some of the benefits of having competitiveness, you know, in a healthcare market. And I wanted to turn then to another uh, policy document or white paper that you had put out uh, that was in the title, Maintaining, let me see, uh, Making Healthcare Markets Work. And it was a document that you uh, put together with Farzad Mastashari, uh, who's CEO of Alidade, and Paul Ginsberg at Brookings. And so let me just start and say, how did that come about? The, the white paper is, probably as I was saying to you earlier, uh, one of the most uh, enriched set of specific policy prescriptions that I had read in a long time and, and something that I'm going to encourage people to, to download and read, I've always been thinking, boy, I wish I had a list of all the top 15 things that you should do to make healthcare markets work. And then when I came across this document, I said, well, here it is. I didn't know it had been written. How did, how did that come together? Yeah, that, that was interesting as well. So again, I think, I think coming back to some of our prior discussion, these things often emerge over long periods of time. So I've been looking at, like I said, healthcare markets for, for decades now. And I, I think a bunch of my ideas did start to come together. I've been thinking about this stuff for a while. And then I also think that my time in the government played a major role, not in any direct way, and in particular, let me make clear anything I said in that document, in my opinion, is don't represent the Federal Trade Commission or U.S. government at all. But just... Being in the U.S. government, uh, the FTC is not a policymaking body, right? It's an enforcement body, but just seeing what happens up front and getting an appreciation also for how much market functioning depends on antitrust enforcement, but not just in antitrust enforcement, on what happens at the state level with regulations and actions taken by state governments, on how much the market functioning in any sector of the economy, be it transportation, telecommunications, healthcare, the financial services sector, depends not just on what 
the Federal Trade Commission or the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice do, but what federal departments do, what HHS does for healthcare, what Department of Transportation does for airlines, what the FCC does in terms of uh, telecom and other sorts of communications, all of those things have profound impacts. And so that really became very real to me uh, as a result of the work I did at the Federal Trade Commission. So that's one thing. Then I was kind of thinking about this and wanted to try and having come back to academia. And of course, I was uh, quite interested in getting back to my research. But I thought, you know, I really enjoy doing stuff that has a real world impact and not just enjoyed it, but I mean, thought it was important. If there's something I could contribute that might be beneficial to my country, I would like to do that. So that started to gel in my mind. And then somehow, I can't remember exactly how this happened. It turned out Prasad Mostashari, who also had been in the government, uh, the Office of the National Coordinator for IT, uh, was thinking along almost exactly the same lines. And so we said, hey, let's join forces. And then I don't remember how this happened exactly either, but uh, somehow we ended up talking to Paul Ginsburg. Paul's been thinking about this stuff and has been in the health policy sphere for decades in Washington, even longer, even longer than me. And so we hooked up with Paul. And the first thing we did actually is we convened a private meeting of a small number of people, very well informed people, academics, policy people, um, market participants from every sector to sit down and not have a bunch of presentations but have an action-oriented meeting in which we would try and come up with a set of policy ideas that were actionable, real-world, real-time policy ideas. And that's what the white paper grew out of. So the participants in that meeting were super helpful to us. They don't hold any responsibility, of course, for what's in that document. Those are our views. But, uh, but that was what we really wanted to do, is come up with some things that actually are feasible that could be done in a real way in real time it could make a difference well there's so many there's so many recommendations in it we won't have time and i won't try to to go through all of them but it is divided into three uh areas and the first one is about enhancing competitiveness in healthcare markets today and one of the big themes in it is around i think the risk of consolidation and there's a point that's made that there's a difference between integration and consolidation. And integration, I think, is when data is being shared across different groups. You can kind of see a big picture. But consolidation is when you start to have either horizontal mergers or vertical mergers uh, that, that maybe can tend to restrict choice or quality. Can you comment on what is, why is consolidation happening and what are the risks uh, that we face when, when it happens in the market? Sure. Sure, but let me first amplify a bit the catchphrase consolidation isn't integration because that's important. So we have a lot of consolidation happening in healthcare. I think 16 or 1700 mergers in the hospital sector since from 1998 up into the present. Lots and lots of acquisitions of physician practices by hospitals, health insurance companies merging, pharmaceutical companies. Lots of consolidation 
here. And, and we can look around. It, it obviously depends on where in the U.S. you live. But if you live right here in southwestern Pennsylvania, where I do, you see a market that is completely dominated on the provider side by University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Health System. They're the, by far and away the largest healthcare provider. And it's not so much large, but dominant in that they're the, they're the one place that nobody can ignore. If you're a health insurer, you really want to have them in your network. They're more than twice as big as the next biggest system, and they have facilities everywhere. They're really very dominant. On the insurance side, we have Highmark, which is a Blue Cross Blue Shield plan, which also is, is, is very large. There are just not a lot of good alternatives, either with regard to health insurance or with regard to healthcare services. This is true in the San Francisco Bay Area that's dominated by the Sutter Health System, Boston Partners Health System, and the list goes, goes on and on. So, okay, so we know that's happening, and that's continuing apace. You can look at the number of hospital mergers, physician practice mergers, anything. The numbers just keep going on and on and on. Um, that potentially could be a good thing. Like you said, Jacob, you could imagine that there are certain things that could be done that would be beneficial. So one simple thing is, say, you can el eliminate unnecessary duplication. For an area of a certain size, you may not need two hospitals with full, fully staffed, fully equipped oncology uh, centers. You may only need one. So you could eliminate that. You may not need as many MRI machines necessarily. You could eliminate some of that. By getting bigger, there might be some beneficial things that come from that. Maybe costs would be lower. There are also some kinds of treatments where it's been observed that places that do more of them do better in terms of patients doing better. Heart surgery is one of them. There are a number of things like that. And that, that, that's sensible. So you can imagine some things that would be beneficial that flow from that. Uh, adoption of, of IT systems in common, systems in general designed to coordinate care and make, um, make really just kind of seamless movements of patients across different parts of the system. All those things you could imagine happening, those are integration. But let's remember what consolidation is, is a transaction. Hospital A buys hospital B. That's consolidation. Now, that's a big deal. These transactions are complicated. They're expensive. There's a lot of legal work associated with those. But when that is done, that's when the hard work really starts. Integration is really, really hard. Suppose you decide you really only need one oncology department. Okay, where should it be? What's the right place to have that? How do you convince the physicians at Hospital B that the oncology department should be at Hospital A? You've got to make all kinds of adjustments. You want to bring in IT systems. This is really hard and it's expensive and difficult. So what we see when we look at all this consolidation, and we've now got decades of this stuff, there's been a lot of research studies looking at, well, are costs lower? They don't find costs are lower. Is quality better? Not really. Is there more coordination of care? Not really. There are some findings here and there that find things like, yeah, after this merger, there was an improvement in cost after this merger improvement in quality, but not systematically, not across the board. So for all of the consolidation we've had in the U.S. healthcare system, and there's been an awful lot, we're not really seeing the benefits 
of this. And I think because, uh, because we're not seeing a lot of integration following on consolidation. Well, what do we see? When we look at uh, mergers between close competitors, whether they're hospitals, insurance companies, physician practices, pharmaceutical companies, when those mergers happen, if they were previously close competitors, prices go up and they can go up a lot. 50, 60%, 10%, a lot. And that adds up to a lot of money. As we were talking earlier, there's also some evidence that quality can suffer as well. So we're seeing harms associated. Again, let me be clear about this. Not all consolidation. A lot of consolidation is not between close competitors. It's not between entities that were competing. Then it's competing. Competing. I just I I wasn't an English major, as as you can probably probably tell. If they weren't competing, then there's no competition lost. There's no harm to competition from that. But when that's the case, research study after research study after research study shows that prices are substantially higher, and often, like I said, that that quality quality suffers. So exactly why I don't know. Um, there's a, a a health policy researcher, a very well-known guy I know as well for a long time in Washington named Bob Berenson at the Urban Institute. And Bob's quip is, is, is the following, uh, cutting costs is hard, raising prices is easy. And it's a little flip, but I think there's some truth to that. Now you've merged. And now let's say, suppose hospital A and hospital B were really close competitors, right? And what that means is now, if insurers in the area wanted to form a network when A and B were competing, if they couldn't reach a deal with A, they could go with B, and that network would be just as attractive as if they'd had both of them or vice versa. Now there's only A, B, and it makes it much harder for insurers not to have the merged hospital in their network. Well, now they've got a lot of negotiating leverage, and so they raise prices. I don't want to act like that's trivial, but that's something that can be accomplished in a fairly straightforward way. Cutting out the unnecessary costs, making investments, really coordinating care, that's really hard. And so there's an element of truth to, to Bob's quip. So the narrative when, when you hear about some of these consolidations, at least a public story, is that, and sometimes it is, well, we can give better quality and we can have greater internal uh, efficiencies, you know, if we have this combination, which you just spoke to, and, and maybe sort of the overconfidence, you know, in the ability to deliver that. But one of the other statements is, look, it's so expensive to run a hospital nowadays, and there's so much regulation and, and so on and so forth, that we just can't do it as an independent entity. Is there, um, you know, I was talking to you earlier about saying, is this the case of a group of hospitals coming together and merging because they have to, they just cannot stay operating in autonomous forms? Or is this a group of hospitals coming together and clinking martini glasses at the end of the night saying, boy, now we can price like a monopolist, look like a monopolist, and have the profits of a monopolist? Well, and it, the, the answer is, it depends. So not all hospitals are the same, not all mergers are the same. And this is... Um, this is a watchword in antitrust, right? Every merger, every potentially, uh, every matter that might involve uh, harms to competition is unique. You have to look at everything on its own, on merits. So there are situations where there are hospitals are having a hard time financially, and they're very worried. They, uh, they might go under, or if not go under, just 
uh, fail to function and be effective uh, for their communities. And they look for a white knight, as it were, another hospital to come in and, uh, and save them. And we do see mergers like that. Mergers like that, uh, for the most part, are not opposed by the antitrust enforcement authorities. There's something in antitrust called a failing firm doctrine. If a firm is literally failing, then uh, even if the merger might be judged harmful to competition, it could still go through if the firm's failing. Uh, in healthcare, what we've seen are not so much failing firms, but uh, what are called flailing firms. They're having a hard time. And those are generally not opposed by the FTC or the DOJ or by state attorneys general. So, so there are some like that, but those don't, um, those don't run afoul of the antitrust agencies. The ones that, that have problems are the ones, I don't know if I call them the, the martini glass clinkers, but, uh, but where you have uh, two or more hospitals that are doing this in a way where it's really gonna increase their negotiating leverage with, uh, with health insurers and that'll raise prices. And it's important to realize what happens when these prices go up, people might think, oh, well, you know, so hospitals raise prices, there's some health insurance company, why would we care about that? They'll just, it'll just come out of their hides. Well, that's not what happens, right? I mean, health insurance premiums are mostly medical expenses. So if prices go up, medical expenses go up, premiums go up. Well, you might say, okay, most people in the US have health insurance through their employers. So now employers have to pay more. Why do I care about that? Well, you may or you may not care, but the fact is what happens is when employers' expenses for health insurance as a fringe benefit goes up, those expenses get passed along to, to employees, to workers. One way to think about it is the following. Um, look, I'm worth a certain amount to Carnegie Mellon as an employee. They don't pay me what I'm worth, of course. By the way, uh, all of your uh, listeners send an email to Dean Ramaya Krishnan Heinz. <laughs> no, seriously, suppose I'm worth. I actually heard once that you should never want to get paid what you're worth because at that point, your employer is indifferent to whether, <laughs> whether they, you're right. 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 You want to get paid a penny less. Penny less. Anyway, but uh, good point. Uh, spoken like a true Chicago trained person. But, but suppose I'm worth $100,000 to Carnegie Mellon, for example, and say they pay $80,000 of that to me in salary and $20,000 of that to me in health insurance fringe benefits. Well, now suppose Carnegie Mellon has to pay $30,000 for health insurance. I'm still only worth $100,000. So th something's got to give. Either they're going to cut my salary to $70,000, so I'll still pay me $100,000 in total, or they're going to say, okay, you know what? we're paying for 20,000 of health insurance benefits, you're going to pay for 10,000 of that cost, or they'll purchase a cheaper health insurance plan that only costs $20,000, but doesn't have as much in the way of benefits. And that's what happens. U.S. workers have not received an increase. I think, actually, let me rephrase that. Um, the average U.S. family has not had an increase in their standard of living net of healthcare expenses in like 30 or 40 years because of the increasing cost of healthcare. This comes back to something we were discussing earlier. Yeah, we're spending a lot of money on healthcare. Well, so what? Well, what's happening is so what is it's crowding out things that people would like to spend on other stuff that would give them more value. That's, that's the problem. So at the end of the day, this is actually a problem for everybody. It's not just, oh, you know, health insurance companies, they can weep crocodile tears. What do we care if their profits are somewhat lower or employers? That's not it. It actually comes out 
of, uh, of the hides of, of workers who are getting employer-sponsored health insurance. There was an entire section on price transparency, which is an area that both of us have had some background in. I told you a little bit about a company, a startup company that's venture-backed in Chicago called Market Medical. And they are uh, able to take in real time, if you're, if you're at the doctor's office and are told that you need to get uh, radiologic services like an MRI, they can in real time at the point of care tell you, hey, for five different places around here, this is how much your out-of-pocket would be based on where you are in your deductible and such. And, and they've started to get some, some traction with Cigna, one of the large health insurance companies. Uh, the white paper uh, used MRIs actually as an example. And, and said that the price of an MRI of the knee in the most expensive area of the country is 1,200% higher than the least expensive area. Anytime you start to talk about 1,000% differences or more, it's, it's, it's actually, I think, difficult for people to sometimes keep up, you know, and thinking of the magnitude of that. Um, and the white paper went on to say that there's similar patterns for other common services. So, but I've heard one critique of price transparency is that how much would it really make a difference in overall spending if people were shopping uh, for care? And I know that you've done uh, some work here in Pennsylvania and such with price transparency. What's your view on that? Yeah, so uh, I co-chaired a, uh, a work group, a commission for the state of Pennsylvania on shoppable health care for consumers. And actually we have a report. It's publicly available. It's online if anybody's interested. And, and that was really, again, educational and also something where I think we did hopefully provide some information that's useful to the state. But I think that one has to be realistic about what transparency can achieve. So I'll summarize briefly. I'm in favor of more transparency. I think it's, it's a good idea, but one has to be realistic. And one also has to be aware of the fact that potentially this could backfire in certain ways. But here's the, here's the key thing about healthcare spending. So um, fortunately, uh, most of us in any given point in time are quite healthy. Only a very small proportion of us are seriously ill and have very high medical expenses. That's a really good thing. It'd be bad if it were the other way around. But what that means is most of medical spending is associated with a, a few uh, very expensive situations for, for individuals. Uh, and I'm not talking about $1,000, 2000 I'm talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions, millions of dollars. Now, um, anybody who has health insurance, and people should, should, has health insurance that should guard against catastrophic expenses. Now, what I'm talking about, these kind of people who account for most of the healthcare spending, they have catastrophic expenses. And what that means is they're going to be covered by insurance. So. If, God forbid, uh, I or somebody in my family has cancer and we have insurance and we go to get treated, then we're going to be past all the cost-sharing features in our health insurance plan. And the health insurance is going to be paying for every additional dollar. And what that means is, if that's the case, there's no reason financially for me to care whether somebody goes to the more expensive or less expensive place. So even if I know that um, somebody could get treatment for an oncology, uh, an oncology treatment, one place instead of another be cheaper, why should I pay attention? It's not my dollar. The other thing, of course, is 
in a very serious health situation like that, most of us, that's the last thing on our minds. All we're thinking about is how we or the person we care about can be treated and hopefully get better. We're not going to budge that stuff with transparency. And that's where most of the health, health dollars are. Let's be realistic about that. That's okay, right? I mean, health, look, healthcare is not like buying a quart of milk. It's not like buying a, a gallon of gas at the gas station. Where can transparency make a difference? It can make a difference for other stuff. So MRIs. So MRIs can be very expensive, but for a lot of health insurance plans, they're, they're uh, not so expensive that people are not paying at least a significant chunk of the cost. MRIs are certainly not a life or death situation. So there, if we can find a way to get people engaged and tell them, by the way, an MRI of your knee is the same thing no matter where you go. It doesn't matter at all who does it. You could go here and it'll cost $1,000. You can go here, it costs $200. Go to the place that costs $200. And either you can get people's attention because it makes a difference to them. They can save $800 or maybe, maybe they don't save themselves a full 800, but they save some of it, or perhaps even there's a bonus for doing that. So yes, I think transparency can make a difference, but is it going to move all of health spending or even most health spending? No, it won't do. It won't do that. The other thing, I think a caveat, well, two things. One, to this point, transparency hasn't been very effective. People just aren't very engaged. They either just don't even look at the transparency tools that are out there, or if they are, they don't do anything once they look at them. The other thing we have to be a little cautious about is the following. If you make a bunch of prices public so that individuals can see them, if that means that the providers, the hospitals or the doctors or the MRI, the imaging centers can see them as well, that might backfire on us that might lead to them uh, competing less rather than more. So I, you can see my price, I can see your price. I'm like, hey, wait a second. I gave a big discount to the Blue Cross pan for an MRI and the other place across town didn't. I'm gonna go back and raise my price. That's interesting. So there are certain environments where having price transparency could actually lead to people raising their price, even though their underlying cost of production wouldn't change, no, this has nothing right? To do I mean, this has cost. nothing to do with that, now, right? Now, would that actually happen, right? So you got, a, you got an imaging center, I have an imaging center, we both negotiate with the local Blue Cross plan, you get a higher price than me, maybe I find out your prices are, I would like to get a higher price, but why should they give it to me, right? right? It's not clear that even once I know that, I'm gonna be able to negotiate. A higher price but that's the concern or maybe it will lead to either explicit collusion i call you on the phone and i say hey you know we're beating each other's brains out here mm -hmm. why should we do this um your price is a thousand mine's 500 why don't we both charge them 1500 bucks or maybe there's no phone call but we each now recognize hey you know if i cut my price next time they come to me i'm going to be worse off Let's just kind of keep it real nice and easy and not compete too hard. Those are the concerns. I'm not saying those would happen, but those are, and those are concerns that antitrust enforcers automatically think about in this situation. Not that they presume it'll happen, but it does raise at least the potential for some of these uh, unexpected uh, consequences that would backfire. 
It's interesting. Is there more that I, I mean, I can especially see that happening where there's, where there's barriers to entry to be able to enter that market and the incumbents know that. And so they say, okay, well now let's coordinate, whether it's explicit or implicit coordination. If there is, uh, if there are no barriers to entry and somebody can, can come in and set up another MRI shop, is, do you have that same concern? No, I think there's a lot less concern. In general, sort of any kind of coordination, whether it's explicit or implicit, is of much less concern if, if another competitor comes in because they can just undo the whole thing right. in the first place. So let me, you know, uh, some of the um, recommendations that tied to price transparency, at least this is how I thought about it, was building up a claims database that where you could start to do research and maybe this wouldn't be public, public information. Uh, there is some of claims aggregation today, I think with the Healthcare Cost Institute, which you were a founding uh, member of, is is there more to be done? I hadn't known of the resources from Healthcare Cost Institute, and when I went to go look at it, I thought, "Wow, this this looks like an enormously valuable database." Uh, is there is it only the beginning? Are there limitations to it today? Yeah, that's a good question. No, I, I think that I think it was. Uh, uh, of course, I uh, I'm inclined to think positively about it um, as being having. Born a hat as a social entrepreneur, uh, found, helping to found this place. I think there's more to be done. So one way to think about it is the, is the following, and, and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, yeah, we're in the information age. Information data are part of our national infrastructure. That's true in healthcare, just like in everything else. Personally, I think we need a national data warehouse. And what I mean by that is I don't mean literally a physical location where all of the healthcare data in the United States are housed physically and they all, you know, your bits and bytes from Blue Cross of California don't have to touch United's bits and bytes. The data can live where they're living right now. What we need is an entity that can access all of the data from every private health insurer, every, every, every Medicaid program, Medicare, the Veterans Administration, every entity in the United States access those and bring them together to shed light on the issues that we're confronting, both privately and publicly. And if you think about it, right now, even the U.S. government, the federal government, knows how much money they spend on Medicare. They know how much money they spend on Medicaid. They don't actually know how much money is spent on private health insurance. They estimate that, and they do the best job possible. Why do they estimate it? Because they don't have the data. The data sit with each private health insurer in the United States, which is fine. But what we need to do is find a way to bring all those data together for the public good. One other thing, and actually you, you mentioned this to me before we started the, the podcast, is there are public health issues that for which this is relevant. We don't have a good surveillance system for public health. Now, health insurance claims data are not perfect for this or other kinds of data one will want as well, but there are a lot of information in health insurance claims. And right now, we don't have the capability to see what's happening because we don't have any way to access all of those data. There are no major technical barriers to do this. We have really smart computer scientists, software engineers who know how to run distributed data systems, even very, very large 
this would be a big data system, but there are even bigger data systems that are, that are being run and run well. It's not a technical issue. Of course, money's always an issue. Uh, this would not be cheap, but it would not be among one of the more expensive kinds of, of investments we'd be making. It's really the, uh, the will and the willingness to make it happen, finding a way for all of the data holders and the, the uh, entities that would benefit from this to come together and find a way to cooperate on this. As I said before, there were so many things I want to talk about in this white paper, but I'm going to, I think, focus just on, on two as sort of a, a closing aspect. And the first one is, with your background uh, from spending time at the FTC, one of the recommendations was uh, in the white paper was to allow the FTC to enforce antitrust in the health insurance industry, to study the health insurance industry, and enforce all antitrust with respect to nonprofit healthcare firms. What are the limitations that the FTC has today in, in the healthcare space? And, and talk a little bit about what the importance of this suggestion is and what we would expect to see uh, if it was fulfilled. Right. So, so the FTC can look at, at mergers between nonprofits, and they've been very active in, in this space. What they can't look at are other kinds of practices or activities by nonprofits that could also harm competition. The antitrust division of the Department of Justice can do that, but not the FTC. The FTC is, is limited from doing that. So just as a matter of principle, we have two enforcement agencies don't we want both of them to, at least in principle, be able to do this? The folks at the Department of Justice are, are more than competent. They're fantastic. But it doesn't make sense that we only have one agency that can enforce the laws of the land with, in this regard. That's on the nonprofits. And then the FTC has an authority uh, under Section 6B of the FTC Act. This is a little arcane, but just bear, bear with me. They have the authority to conduct important studies of of either certain kinds of behaviors or sectors of the economy in order to understand them better so that they can help markets function better to the benefit of consumers, the benefit of the citizens of the United States. So this authority under Section 6B gives them the authority to take the time and resources to do these studies, which can sometimes be uh, pretty lengthy, but they also can get market participants to cooperate and provide them with information. They can use subpoena power if necessary to get data, to interview people, to get documents. Now, this is not done lightly, right? It's always borne in mind that there could be potential non-trivial burdens on respondents to businesses, but there are some things that are very important that, uh, that rise to the level of asking market participants to take on some burdens for the benefit of the country. The FTC has this authority. The Department of Justice does not. They don't have the authority to do this. Only the FTC can do this. The FTC can do this and has done this in a lot of industries. For example, while I was there, we did a report under Section 6B on patent assertion entities, also called patent trolls, because it was an important phenomenon. There were lots of anecdotes floating around about what was happening, but no systematic knowledge. 
So we went and looked at that specifically. We did a, a study of merger remedies, looking retrospectively at what had happened and how well they worked. So there are lots of things that could be done this way that only the Federal Trade Commission to do, but they're at this point in time legislatively barred from conducting such a study on any part of the insurance industry, health insurance or any other, any other insurance. So health insurance is a very important part of the economy, right? I don't have to convince you or anybody else about that. So again, it just makes sense for the FTC to be able to do these kinds of studies so we can learn more about what's going on. And so um, not just the FTC, but, but any policy entities can, uh, can do a better job at, at uh, helping our healthcare system work as well as it possibly can. That's a great overview. So the final question we had talked about, uh, I had asked you before, are there any healthcare reforms that you've heard of that you thought were brilliant ideas, whether they got off the ground or didn't? And we started to have a conversation about uh, the Cadillac tax. And so I wanted to hear your thoughts on, and I should say the so-called Cadillac tax. I actually have a colleague that said, Cadillacs, I'm not interested in, only McLarens. And so maybe it should be called the McLaren tax. Uh, but the, the tax sort of relates to, as you talk about it, the tax deductibility um, that employers have today for health insurance. And, and we were talking about some of the uh, suggestions that were made by the McCain campaign in, in years past. It didn't come to fruition. But let me just ask you, what are your views on the so-called Cadillac tax and, and then the reform proposal that was put forth by uh, Senator McCain? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Jacob. So the Cadillac tax is kind of like the ugly, ugly baby of, of health policy. Um, economists and a few other policy wonk types love it. We're like the parents, but ugly baby, what are you talking about? It's beautiful. It's the best policy ever. And nobody else likes it. Everybody else looks at it and goes, oh, man, that's an ugly baby. Now, let me talk about what the purpose, what it's addressing, and why I and, and most other economists think this is, this is a good idea. So most people in the United States that have health insurance have it through their employer, employer-sponsored health insurance. And all the money that the employer spends on, spends on health insurance is not taxed. Now, um, the amount of tax that the U.S. government would collect if that were taxed, just like income, is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Actually, it'd be enough to finance health insurance policies for 20, 30 million people right, right off the bat. If you, there's lots of other things that could be done with it, of, of course. But uh, you could cut income taxes substantially over across the board, you get the income tax rates if you tax the, the uh, billions of dollars that are spent on employer-sponsored health insurance. The reason that economists and others are concerned about it is the following. And this is a tale that just takes a few steps to unfold. So what happens? So I can get another dollar either in pay, which will be taxed at whatever my tax rate is, or I can get another dollar in health insurance benefits that won't be taxed. And so for a lot of people, it turns out getting that money uh, without being taxed is, is preferable. Now, what does that mean? That means that then health insurance benefits get richer than they otherwise would be. So what does that mean? Health insurance is more generous than it otherwise would be. Okay, that doesn't sound bad. Actually, I kind of like that idea. You like that idea. We all like it. Well, what happens as a result of that? Well, now all of us have more generous health insurance. 
So all of us have less reason to pay attention to what anything costs. And the uh, hospitals, doctors, pharma companies know that, and they don't necessarily feel bad about something costing more because it's not costing the patient that much money because they have insurance. So everything costs more. Uh, people use more. People spend more. We're not like, it's not like uh, saying, well, um, I have a bad knee. I need an operation. I mean, I'm not going to have two, right? It's not like that. But you're there in the doctor's office. Your knee's been bothering you. They said, well, you could have an MRI. You could wait a few months and see if it gets better. You just go and have the MRI because it's not going to cost you much of anything. And so that kind of stuff, and if you think about what happens with all of us across the entire system, it starts to add up. It's a lot of money. Okay. So now we're spending a lot more on healthcare than where there would be. What happens to the cost of health insurance? It goes up. So health insurance gets more and more expensive. Now that has a few different impacts. One thing is, as we talked earlier, is it comes out of workers' hides in various ways. So this is indirect, we don't see it, right? This is, you can't follow the dollar around very easily like this. Uh, I mean, it, it's not a straightforward thing. It's not like when we go to the gas station, we see, well, now it's 250, it was 239 the week before. That's a very different thing. That's right there, it's staring us right in the face. We don't see it, it's indirect. It's not something that is through our action, it's through the collective actions of everybody. But the other thing that happens is, as health insurance becomes more expensive, becomes less and less affordable. So particularly prior to the Affordable Care Act, some things that happened is some employers would just drop health insurance coverage entirely. It became too expensive, right? At some point, um, they, they just either would have had to pay their workers so little that the workers wouldn't want to work there anymore, or they could not offer them health insurance, so they stopped offering health insurance. Or again, uh, uh, pay gets compromised or other things get, uh, get compromised. So ironically, this is just completely unintentionally, the tax exclusion can have these pretty profound systemic effects, the entire system that makes us spend more money um, in this ongoing spiral, makes it more expensive and less affordable. So it sounds like a good thing, but it actually has these system-wide impacts that are unintended. So um, what most economists think would be a good idea is if we end the tax exclusion, we just start taxing health insurance like we tax income, probably not overnight, we gradually phase it out and, uh, and then let the system adjust. Now, what are people concerned about? Most people look at that proposal and say, wait, let me get this straight. You're telling me I sh I'm going to pay higher taxes and that's a good idea. Do I look crazy? Right? Now, what we think will happen is as this is taxed, this will tend to uh, counteract the effects we just talked about, make health spending uh, grow less rapidly and that uh, people should see some, some resumed growth in their wages. But to be honest, um, I can't guarantee that will happen. And that's something that would take some time. And we can't say that that will literally happen dollar for dollar for every person. So not surprisingly, it's a hard sell politically. Workers uh, are opposed to it. Unions are very strongly uh, opposed to it. A lot of employers are, are opposed to it. Personally, I think the way to do this politically, although I'm no expert 
on this, I've never held political office, is if you're going to do this, I would say, okay, look, here's what's going to happen. We're going to phase out the tax exclusion. But since that'll mean we'll be collecting more revenues, we can cut your income tax rates as well. And make sure that happens not just at the top end, but that happens for everybody. So the average working person who's scraping to come up with their rent, shoes for the kids, uh, uh, food, their food bills, sees something where they at least are at the bare minimum are held harmless or ideally come out, come out ahead. I think just saying to people, look, we're going to do this. People hear it as a tax increase and they're, they're not wrong, right? It, it is a tax. It is a tax increase. And hearing some academic like me say, oh, it'll all work through the system eventually. And, uh, you know, you just follow the Rube Goldberg machine and eventually it'll come out and you'll, you'll be better off. They're not buying that. And, and I, don't, I don't blame them, even though I think that's what will work. I completely understand why people look at that and say, well, that may or may not be true. But even if it happens, you can't tell me for sure it's going to happen all that quickly and you can't tell me that I'm gonna end up held harmless. So I, I, think, I think you have to find a way to do this uh, and pair it with something that cuts people's tax rates so that, that they, they find it palatable. And I think ultimately it would work out uh, to our benefit. But, but no, uh, nobody in Congress, regardless of whether they're Republican or Democrat, has been willing to do this. The Cadillac tax is law of the land. But uh, it's an it's implementation to delayed time and time again, again, because you can hardly get people in federal government uh, for Congress to agree on anything nowadays. Right. So a Republican will say the sky is blue and a Democrat will say, how dare you say that or the other way around. Right. Uh, but this is something they can agree upon. So but when was it? It was 2008. Right. It was the 2008 election. Where where McCain, McCain was yes yeah McCain did did have that as part of his platform and I give him a lot of credit uh, because it's something that I'm sure he knew would not be popular politically but that was part of his platform and Obama criticized him he used that as a debating point in the campaign although ultimately the Affordable Care Act did end up including not identically not e- exactly what McCain proposed but something that was very much in that same spirit fascinating. Yes. Let's see the next time that we have a proposal like that in front of us. I feel like it may be a while. Yes, yes, it, 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 in, it, indeed. And, and I think sort of one thing I've, I've learned over, over the years, particularly also from our, our white paper with all these policy proposals, is that the challenge is not any shortage of good ideas, not any shortage of even practical ideas, not any shortage of ideas that are not partisan, that should, not, uh, should be supported by, by both parties. Uh, the challenge is the politics. And I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, but if you want to implement policies that enhance competition, consumers would win, but there are losers, let's be honest. And the hospitals that face more competition, the pharma companies that face more competition, insurance companies, physicians, um, some of them will lose. Some of them would gain, but some of them will lose. And uh, they have very strong interests and they make those interests known. That's completely fair. That's part of our system. But uh, consumers are diffuse. Uh, Competition doesn't have a constituency. There's not a lobby. So my colleagues and I 
uh, we didn't really, I think, engage in advocacy, but we did go around and meet with people on the Hill, just kind of said, here's our white paper, here's a bunch of ideas, you want to ask us questions, we're happy to, to talk about it. And uh, one thing that often came out, we're meeting with staffers, we're like, well, okay, um, these, most people thought these were really good ideas. They liked the ideas. Many felt that they weren't partisan and they could get support from folks on both sides of the aisle in Congress, but we frequently heard, well, I've got to deal with lobbying organizations. Yeah, there, there is this, I mean, I, I told you I've been doing some strategy work in the telehealth space, and that was actually also part of the white paper recommendations was to allow for innovative new forms that may be able to deliver care for less expensive than is being done now, and actually with much more uh, availability than, than it's done yes. today. Uh, one of the things that I have heard is that working with different employers and health insurance companies is that they love telehealth. They find that, especially during uh, rising flu seasons or such, that the number of people that would be going to, they hoped, an urgent care center, but quite often an emergency room, uh, could now be seen in telehealth through an app on their phone and the patient was getting faster service, and the payer was paying less. The payer or the employer was paying less. So then you think about, well, what's changed? Everybody has won here, except for potentially the people in the emergency room. And so I was talking to an emergency room physician who told me uh, she became interested in telehealth because she said, you know, one of the things that was kind of nice is that we used to have people coming in that weren't always the most urgent, you know, harpoon in the chest kind of situation, right? And now those people are disappearing. They're going to urgent cares or they're going virtual, you know, to, to telemedicine, which means that in the ER, you know, we're getting hit with the more and more complex patients only and such, right? And so she said, but we're not compensated any differently. And so and I've heard this from other uh, you know, physicians that practice in ambulatory settings. They said, well, it used to be that I had 12 minutes on average to see a patient. And so I might have a complex diabetic patient, but then I'd have somebody that was coming in that actually it was trivial. I could, I could solve their, their issue in a minute. Uh, but now if those people are pulled out, now I only have the people that are the complex patients coming in, but I still only get the 12 minutes. You know, it used to be I could borrow from Paul to pay Peter, borrow from Peter to pay Paul. But now there's no, there's no robbing or stealing from one uh, to hit the other. And, you know, the, um, the, so the consequence of these kind of recommendations, which I, of course, agree, you know, this is uh, why shouldn't we be using technology to deliver faster, high, more high quality, sometimes uh, convenient care. But there's this built-in resistance uh, from folks that now are feeling, well, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to be doing more complex work, maybe at the same pay, same amount of time allotment, what gives? Right, right. And I, I think that's, that is a real challenge. If physicians, hospitals, anybody are are doing things that are more complex and more costly than they should be compensated appropriately. There's no question about that. On the same time, if, if we're going to use markets for delivering healthcare, and like I said, that's what we're doing now. There's a, we don't show any signs of going away from that. Then we just have to live with the way markets work, right? If you're a buggy whip manufacturer, you don't get to say that automobiles are not allowed 
in your market, you would like to do that. If you are a taxi company, you don't get to say Uber can't come in. By the way, of course, we know they tried over and over again. And so in any market where there's competition on an ongoing basis, there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers. And we have to be prepared with those realities. That doesn't mean that people shouldn't get compensation that's fair, that covers their costs of doing business 100%. And if that adjustment needs to be made, we need to find a way to uh, to do that. Uh, but if volumes drop off in the emergency room, particularly if they're less severe people, those are very profitable, right? It's not very costly to deal with them. And you get paid quite handsomely for, for that. Not surprisingly, uh, they're not so enthusiastic about that. Another thing about sort of Newer modes of delivering care. Telehealth is certainly one of the newest, but even say having uh, nurse practitioners, right? We have these scope of practice laws in various states that limit what nurses of various kinds can do. You often find complaints or resistance to this by, say, physicians. I think they may recognize that, uh, that they stand to lose, but there may also be perhaps um, a failure of imagination on some parts. Well, why don't you harness this in a way that that benefits you and benefits consumers. If you're a physician practice, why don't you do telehealth, right? Why don't you use more nurse practitioners? Why don't you hire them and have them make money for you? Why don't you stay open after five o'clock? Why aren't you open on weekends? If you're a pedi pediatrics office, anybody have a kid who ever got an ear infection at 3 p.m. on a Wednesday? Yet, these offices are open nine to five, Monday through Friday. Well, it's no surprise if telehealth is available or urgent care or minute clinics, people are going to these places instead. You have to adapt and, uh, and we can't engage in protectionist policies that, don't, that remove pressure to do things that are beneficial for consumers. Again, I'm not unsympathetic to the points you raised. I think we do have to make sure that we're, we're not um, paying below cost. Of course, we're paying below cost. Ultimately, uh, these people won't be able to provide the service. I don't see them not providing the service. So their profits may be lower, but that doesn't mean it's not profitable. Yeah, I've, I've, I've wondered about that because I think that to, to, certainly the long term, that's true that you would start to see if somebody looked at becoming a physician and they said, well, this is going to be a negative return on investment. You know, I'm not going to do it. In the short run, if you have people that have already invested in gaining that medical knowledge and now their next best alternative is to go and I don't really know what else you would do. I mean, you're a highly skilled person, sure. but you can't apply any of your medical specific skills. Well, you're maybe. not going to go play in the NBA. You're not going to go play in the NBA. And you can't be, let's say, even an investment banker or an attorney or something because you didn't, you could have at one point probably gone down that path, but you didn't. So now if you are being paid uh, less, you know, you're being paid at the level that a future version of yourself would say, no, I'm not going to go into medicine. Right. The current version of yourself is kind of stuck. Right. I mean, so there is an opportunity, I think, to put a tax in place, if you will, or maybe some form of implicit tax on the current level of people who are physicians um, in and sort of pay them less than than maybe you could get away with in the long run. Oh, sure. Fair enough. So I, I just to be clear, my last statement is not literally, well, they're not leaving in droves, so there must not be a problem. But uh, but it's it. 
it, the, I should have been more careful. It, the problem is not so severe at this juncture. But yeah, I mean, if they're stuck with the more, most of your patients and their compensation has not been adjusted at all, then that should be, uh, that should be uh, looked at. As far as you know, the, uh, the number of doctors overall, uh, again, I think things, have def things are definitely not as good for physicians as they once were. On the other hand, uh, the enthusiasm for getting a med medical education is not abated, mm -hmm. right? Still less than half of all applicants to med school in any given year, it's not applications, but applicants, far less than half get admitted. That's been true for a long, long time. We've actually, uh, the past years, expanded the number of medical schools and the number of slots. But, uh, but still, it's not like uh, current students who are thinking of applying to med school have decided it's a terrible career. They don't want to do it. There's still, still many, many more people that would like to become a physician than get accepted to U.S. medical schools. No, absolutely right. And so many more even that have, that have uh, medical degrees that are trying to get into residency. Yes, so yeah, I fully take your 100%. point. 100%. So I, I, don't want, I don't want to sound completely hard-hearted, although I may. Uh, it, like I said, I, I mean, the quality of professional life for physicians is not as good, I think, as it once was. And there are lots of reports of stress and burnout. I'm not discounting all of those things. But at this juncture, it doesn't appear to have discouraged large numbers of, numbers of people, uh, either from applying to U.S. med schools or people with medical degrees from outside the U.S. trying to get into the country to practice medicine here. It's still a, a really good job, at least in the judgment of, of most people who would like to practice medicine in the United States. Well, and thank goodness for that. So <laughs> hopefully, uh, this has been a great discussion. I really feel like we could keep going on, uh, but this has probably given us a lot of uh, food for thought. And so thanks so much for taking the time uh, to discuss both of these, the white paper and also uh, the paper free to choose with me. It's been a great privilege. Thank you, Jacob. It's been a, been a real pleasure, and I hope your listeners uh, enjoy this and take something away. Thanks again.